we're looking at stories over the next three or four weeks, and we've kind of, it's, we said it's going to be a little bit like a Star Wars thing where it kind of just ends abruptly, and that's okay. Uh, we'll just l- leave it hanging. Um, and last week we looked at, uh, at starting from Genesis, and we saw in Exodus this Passover and, and how it was set up for this very moment when Jesus says, you know, I've longed to take this Passover with you. He's saying, uh, I've longed since the beginning of time. I've longed for this very moment. There's an epoch of history changing, a time in history that's changing. We, we've always been in a time after Jesus has been raised to de- uh, from, life, from death to life. But there was a time where he wasn't yet, and he was going through, and, and he showed them how the Passover is about, about Jesus. And, and that's why we have this communion um, to celebrate what Christ has done. And, and so we saw that every single thing the enemy tried to do, Satan tried to do, and we spoke about Satan a lot last week, and, and we'll probably never speak about him that much again. But everything he tried to do, not being omniscient, not being all-powerful, not knowing everything, so he's strategic and has plans and plots to kill Jesus, to destroy his life, to basically leave us hopeless in this world. Every time he does something and it looks like he's getting something right, God shows that he's going to use that exact thing to achieve his purposes. And it's kind of like, you know, I don't know if you, the enemy is stumbling into God's plan. Um, and it's a, it's a great relief because we kind of get to the end of last week and go, God is sovereign and providential. Even if we don't understand what's going on in our lives, we have a sovereign God who can, can turn all things to the good of those who love Him and seek to do His will. It doesn't mean we will only experience good. It doesn't mean we won't have tough days. We will. If you've ever gone to a church that preaches that, health, wealth, and prosperity, God just wants you to be happy, Larry, and all things to go well, you will know that that's impossible. That's not what life is like at the moment. We all experience, everyone in this room experiences suffering, right? But God can turn all things to the good of those who love Him and seek to do His will. And He can do that because He's sovereign and all things can work according to His plan. What a relief and a joy um, because we are limited in our ability and our scope, right? Okay, so this morning, we're going to look at five uh, different parts, or this part of the story is going to have five different uh, chapters to it, I guess. And um, where we start, and, and just to give you a heads up, I'm going to ask for five people in a, in, as we go on through this. I'm going to ask for five different people who'd be willing to come and stand as placeholders of words. And um, we're going to put up, Joel and I have agreed to put up a pretty like dark and apocalyptic um, background. Uh, nice, Joel. That's perfect. And it's just like sinister and mean. Um, and that's going to just be there all morning. You can ignore it if you like. But uh, so just I'm going to ask for five people as we go along. And you're going to come and s- if, if you, you're going to stand and, and people might look at you. So just to prepare you. Um, and that may get awkward for you. So it's going to be five people who don't get awkward or who are super narcissistic and think, you know, lucky you, you get to look at me. Um, <laughs> You would be, this morning we need you. <laughs> so, okay, so what happens is Jesus is, um, he's just prayed this prayer and he's in, the, he's in the garden on his knees and it says that, that his sweat like blood, which means that his, his so, there's so much trauma going through his body, anxiety and stress and grief about walking this plan of God out that his body is, is, is the sweat is coming out, thick sweat is coming out of his body. You, you know that feeling that, kind of clammy, damp, you, you know, you haven't run, you haven't done any exercise, but you're sweating. Um, there's something happening inside of you that's causing major physical grief. 
uh, to be on the outside. And Jesus comes from this moment where he has to, this is basically why it's so hard for him, he has to become everything that he's not in order to save us. So Jesus is pure, he has to become the most perverted. Jesus is gentle, he has to become the most violent. Not that he, that he does any of that, but he has to become as if he were. Jesus is the most safe. He has to become as if he were the most dangerous. Jesus would be the kind of person every young woman uh, should be able to run to and, and, and feel safe with him, but he has to become as if he were a rapist. That he's on his knees in grief because he has to become as if he were the worst of worst. Now, it's one thing, and it's a true thing, to say, you know, all sin is equal. We mustn't rank sin. Sin is sin, and that's true. But that's not how we experience it. If you steal my lunch, I'll experience that differently to if you punch me in the face with anger in your heart. I will dislike your anger more than I'll dislike your stealing, even though they're the same. Right? You with me? And Jesus has to put on as if he were the worst of sinners, everything is contrary to who he is. Imagine you having to look at your friend or your spouse or, or um, a parent or a child. So, something. Just imagine someone you love, someone, someone you're for. If you can't think of anyone, imagine yourself. Just someone you're for. You want to do them good. You want them to, to like you and feel safe around you. And, and imagine doing the unimaginable to them. would grieve you. It would break your heart. It would be too much for you to bear. And Jesus has to imagine all of this coming on Him, the sins of the world coming upon Him, Him becoming everything that He is not, so that He can follow the plan of God and He can be crucified and, and be, be uh, punished in our place for our sins. So He comes out of this heavy time of committing himself to the plan of God and saying, yes, Father, let's, I'll, I'll do this. I'll, I'll drink the cup of wrath. This heavy decision. And he comes then to his disciples and he wakes them up and he, te- he's, he tries to teach them again about the importance of prayer. He knows what's coming up and he's like, all right, guys, so you really need to pray because difficult days are coming up and I'm not going to be here to babysit you. You need to pray. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, didn't you like say that before we took this nap? Weren't you saying? And he's like, yeah, it's very, very serious. And you imagine a couple of the disciples are like, man, I, I do not like it when he gets like this. You know, sometimes Jesus just harps a little bit. Um, this is like his hobby horse. Prayer is his thing at the moment. Um, and they're just struggling with it. But as he's doing this, there's flickering lights through the trees. And that's a, probably a little bit more interesting to them than what Jesus is teaching them. And we know that because even though Jesus taught them, they still took a nap. But the flickering lights come through the trees, and they turn to to footsteps. And this is the middle of the night. There should be nothing going on, and this is waking them up. And then they begin to see a, a, a kind of a small little army walking through, a crowd of people coming through. And in the front of the pack is Judas. But this army... they've got clubs and swords and they're coming through and Judas is the head of the pack. And Judas walks all the way up to Jesus and this has really woken up the disciples. 
Jesus, and Judas comes to Jesus and he, he, he comes forward to give him a kiss on the cheek. Now remember the Bible says greet each other with a holy kiss. So this would be totally cultural. Come, comes forward and he greets Jesus. And, and just bear in mind the backstory to this is that Judas has taken some money from the religious officials to identify Jesus through a kiss and betray him. To basically hand Jesus over to these authorized and deputized to take you away and arrest you, people. Um, and so here, this is that moment. So I wonder if I could have someone just come in, and I, I don't know if I've scared everyone off, but if someone doesn't mind, Richard's already running away. Um, <laughs> if someone doesn't mind standing here and, and being, being the picture of betrayal for us. Does anyone mind? Thanks, Andy. Uh, you, you can face people or me. It doesn't matter. No, stay down there. Just, yeah, and just, so Judas comes and Jesus stops him in the kiss. And Jesus says, would you betray me with a kiss? He calls him out. Judas doesn't seem to be a true follower of Jesus. He doesn't seem to have had a sincere faith in Christ. He seems to have always been using Jesus for his own good. Do you know anyone like that? Have you ever been that kind of person who... For some season in your life, it looked like a good idea to be a Christian. It looked like there were some great benefits to walking in that way. I've, 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 I've got friends who say this to me, Mark, I'm attracted to the Christian tradition because if I keep the precepts, I will be a good person. They're using the teachings of Jesus to give themselves the identity of goodness. They have no faith in Jesus. They have no love for Jesus. They have no idea what Jesus has done for them. Jesus is just basically Buddha who's given some good teachings about you being a good person. Judas has used Jesus for money, for the hope of, of power. This kingdom's coming. Judas is he's ambitious. And now he sees it's all kind of coming to an end. Well, he can get some money out of it. Will you betray me for a kiss, with a kiss? And Jesus stands betrayed. Say here, if, if you will, please, Andy. Jesus stands betrayed. Now, I want you to picture, Andy is the picture of Jesus. Jesus is staying betrayed. And every time you think of Andy, you think of uh, yourself or others that use Jesus for their own gain. How can I use him in my life? If he's demanding, I'm not interested. But then the story shifts, and, and Judas gives him a kiss, um, and now the, the disciples are really kind of sparked. And there's some people that ask questions, and there's some people that just do things. Do you know people like that? People who, who act before they, they think? Um, and the disciples are mostly question askers, but Peter's not. Peter's more of a doer. And so the disciples ask the question, you know, some of them, what should we, you know, should we, should we, should we fight this, the, these people? Should we protect you? Should we defend you? What's going on? Is this a battle? Peter, on the other hand, doesn't have time for words. He just takes a sword and chops someone's ear off. <laughs> Peter's a doer. Nice to have him around. Now you can imagine. Imagine a footy game. If anyone watched the Eagles and Dockers yesterday, you would have seen brief moments where grown men who've got nothing against each other, they're all paid a lot of dollars to chase a little yellow ball around a green field with lots of people saying, We love you! We love you! They have no reason to fight. 
But they find each other and they grab each other by the shirts like little children because they're not allowed to punch each other. And they basically give little short arm jabs because all you can do is push someone away and then quickly pull them back and then quickly push them back. <laughs> That's legal. As long as you're holding their jumper, their gurney. And there's lots of this. It's like little children. Just... You can imagine the tension. The cameras go on this. In, in the, t the cameras, the crowd. Did you hear the people at Optus through the TV as they're watching? Yeah! Forget the game! That's what they came to watch. The thing that footy fans love more than footy is the fights in footy. And there's this tension. And the umpires, the most insipid people, they, they're completely useless. They stand there with their little whistles and their blue shirts going, please stop. We're also on camera, and we're in charge. You go over there, you go over there, if you don't mind. And no one listens to them. And all the players know they have about 60 seconds before the game has to move on, and then there'll be free kicks. So they go for about 57 seconds, and then it stops. But the umpires are useless. This is the kind of tension, but, but real, not just footy tension. This is real. There's violence. A guy's ears being cut off. This army is authorized and deputized to, to uh, take Jesus away. Murders can begin happening. If these two get into it, there's no knowing what's going to happen. And Jesus has to step into that and say, stop. Pause. Hold on. This is not how it's going down. And Jesus takes authority of the whole situation. Now, I just want to be humble and admit at this moment, I know that if I was in two crowds that were totally against each other, and one was authorized and deputized by the government, and the other was a, a rebel group, and they were up against it, imagine in like Perth City or something on the street, I know, that I, I'm pretty realistic about the fact that if I went and stood in between them and said, guys, please stop fighting, no one would listen to me. There's something about Jesus that he's able to, to control this moment, even in this great tension. There's something wonderful about him. That he's able to bring peace where, where just in a human nature you just couldn't. He doesn't have government authority to declare peace. He, he's the leader of the rebel army. And yet somehow he pauses this whole thing enough to do a small procedure, medical procedure on the guy's ear. And we were trying to discuss a community group. Did Jesus miraculously give him a new ear? Did he pick up the old ear? I mean, it seemed like all the doctors would have a struggle with that. Like, what about hygiene? And you don't just do surgery with dirt on an old uh, limb. But in the battlefield, maybe you do. Maybe you pick it up if you're Jesus and you just heal it. Who knows? It doesn't matter. A miracle happened. Won't someone... Um, Come down, if you don't mind. Who, who, I need someone for abandon. Steve, thanks. Can you just stand next to Andy? Now it's less. Now, whenever you look at Andy, look at, think of Jesus being abandoned. I'm going to tell you why now. Because this is what happened. We read it. But think about this poor crowd just for a moment. They are not the elders, the, the scribes. They are not those who sit in high positions. They are not those who, who take money from the poor. These are the people who work for those people. They've been authorized, deputized, and sent to go arrest Jesus. It's their job, right? 
This one guy's had his ear cut off and Jesus has healed him. We don't know exactly how the crowd feels about Jesus, but what we do know is there must be at least one guy who's second-guessing whether they should be arresting this man or not. But he doesn't have the right to second-guess. He's under authority. And Jesus never condemns what they're doing because he understands they're under authority, and this is God's plan, and sovereign Jesus is able to read the times, and he's able to control the moment. And he's not, he's not fearful. He's not anxious. He's not losing himself. He's not going, what are you guys doing? Who do you think you are? Don't you know who I am? He's not desperate. Isn't it amazing to see Jesus at work in this most desperate moment? Jesus in control. But very quickly, Jesus is standing abandoned. Because the ten, ten of his disciples, we've lost Judas... He betrayed Jesus, so we're down to 11. Ten go running off when Jesus isn't calling for a fight, but he's giving himself up willingly to be arrested. Ten run away. I'm, I, I'm not getting arrested. I'm not going to trial. This isn't happening. In fear and worry, they're gone. Jesus stands abandoned. Jesus has given three years to these people. He's taught them every day. He's miraculously fed them. He's used them. They have ministered. They've seen signs and wonders. These are profound leaders in Jesus' team. They are going to become the A-team. They are going to be His apostles. A as in apostles, not like first plan. They're going to be His apostles. They are the, those who in heaven, when we t- Jesus is going to give them authority in the future in His kingdom, they're going, to be, they're going to have these positions in heaven where they are judges over Israel. These are, these are His guys, His team. They've abandoned Him. They've run away. Jesus is not relying on his team to do any of his work. Now, Peter often gets thrown under the bus, and he needs to because there's lots of reasons to throw him under the bus. But we forget that Peter's the last one standing. Peter's still around. We don't throw, I mean, we throw Judas under the bus because he threw himself there. We don't often talk about the ten, and we always mention, yeah, Peter, man, right. Peter really lacked faith. Peter was there. He was holding on. His brothers were gone. Judas had betrayed. He was the last man standing. Why did he stand? Because Peter, remember he had professed, you are the Son of God. The, the, the words of life are from you. Who else can we go? There's no one else we could turn to. You are what we've been waiting for. And even though you can't understand what's happening, this is still Jesus, the Messiah, God's Savior of the world. So G- Peter, they arrest Jesus. Jesus says, don't, don't use cuffs and clubs and stuff. Just, I'll walk with you. I'll go with you. I'm happy to uh, um, take me in. Now, th- what they're doing became illegal. It was probably illegal then, but not written. And it became codified that what they did was illegal to, to do something like this in the evening. But Jesus, over the course of the next few hours and days, is going to go through five different trials. But the first one is going to happen in someone's home it's a, very, it's a very illegal thing to do. But they're going to take him to someone's home and they're going to uh, start trying him there. And that's where we're going to find him. But as Jesus walks with this crowd that's authorized and deputized to arrest him, Peter follows at a distance. So there's a little bit of fear in Peter. Peter doesn't want to be arrested. He's uh, following from the distance. You can hear his footsteps walking through the trees. You see this mob, this light mob uh, walking through the, the forest. But Peter is following in the dark distance. Okay. 
And this is the part of the story we know well because we have spent years and years and years throwing Peter under the bus. Peter goes, it's a cold night, and Peter goes uh, outside the, the house. There's a courtyard, and there's some uh, poorer people who would be outside in the fireplaces just staying warm through the night and the early hours of the morning. And Peter goes to one of those fireplaces, and he's trying to stay warm, but he's close enough to look up and see what's happening with Jesus. He, he, he's interested. He's concerned about it. And Jesus has said to him a few things about what's going to happen that night. Now, let me remind you the things that Jesus has said to him just earlier, earlier in, the, in Luke. Jesus has said, Peter, Satan has been trying to sift you out. He's been trying to take you down, but you haven't been taken down because I have, I have stood and prayed for you. I've, held, I've stood in the gap for you. You're not going to get taken down, but you are going to leave me alone. You are going to reject me. You are going to turn your back on me. And Peter says, there's no ways I would die with you. There's no ways I'd reject you. And he, Jesus says, ah, when you do, and when you come back, because Jesus is going to be part of bringing him back and restoring him, I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers. He gives him the whole life story. Not the whole life story, but part of it. Peter, you're going to reject me, you're going to leave me alone, it's going to break your heart, but you're going to come back, you're going to be restored, and then I'm going to use you to strengthen your brothers, to give them courage, to give them faith, and then we're really going to get to work together. So Peter's here on this night, he's looking at Jesus, and this young girl says to him, this, this young girl with no power, no authority, probably younger in age, and, and less in societal standing, says, aren't you with him? That guy's getting arrested. Weren't, weren't you one of his followers? And Peter goes, no, I don't even know the guy. Thanks, love. You read me like a book. No, I don't even know the guy. Oh, she says, oh, I could have sworn I saw you with him. Oh, well, she moves on. Someone else comes and joins the fire. And they're sitting, and you can imagine, it's dark. It's, the middle of, it's, it's midnight, middle of the morning, uh, pitch black, this little fire. So you can't see everyone's faces super easy, Right? But every now and then, the, 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 the fire puts light on Peter's face. And someone's saying, I, I, I swear I've seen you. Looks at his clothes. You're not from around here. Man, aren't you one of those guys who were with him? And we all know Peter says, no, I've never seen this guy before. The whole time, Peter's watching what's happening as Jesus is being tried. Jesus is being accused. As Jesus is standing there. With, uh, now with Roman guards around him. Or priestly guards, actually, around him. And, and then someone else comes about an hour later. Luke's quite specific. Someone else comes about an hour later and says, I know beyond doubt that you were with him. I've seen you. Maybe he, maybe, maybe he followed a little bit. Maybe he looked up to Peter because Peter was one of the main guys. Who knows? But he is 100% sure that this is Peter, one of Jesus' followers. And Peter says, I tell you, I promise, I tell you on my mother's grave, there is no chance I even know this guy. I've never heard of him. And the rooster crows just as Jesus has said. And this is the most powerful, breathtaking, uh, this moment in, in history it should be shown in, in every museum, 
it should be highlighted in heaven again and again because it would cause an eruption of praise and glory at who Jesus is. I'm not sure that there's a verse in the Bible that shows me more of what Jesus is like when, t- when things are tough and when we are sinful than this verse. In that moment, Jesus in the middle of his trial, maybe an equal moment is Jesus on the crucifixion where he looks at John and Mary and he says, John, that's your mother and mother, that's your son. Take care of each other. Maybe that's this kind of moment. He's being tried. He knows he's going to be arrested. He knows he's going to be beaten. And in the middle of that, the rooster crows. And Jesus has the wherewithal to pause what's happening in this moment, to turn around, to find Peter's eyes, and to look at him. And Luke says the two of them see one another. They make eye contact. Peter has just rejected Jesus. The rooster has crowed. Peter realizes, oh my gosh, I've done exactly what I told Jesus I wouldn't. And Jesus looks at him. It can only be with the greatest and deepest love in his eyes. Jesus isn't surprised. Jesus isn't shocked. And Jesus has already promised that he's going to restore Peter and use Peter. But it's a kind of a Peter, I understand, kind of moment. Wow. Wow. This is our Savior. Have you dropped the ball with Jesus? Have you you promised to walk with Jesus one way, but you didn't? Have you said, Jesus, I will never do this again, and then you did it again? Have you condemned yourself? Have you put a burden on your back? Have you sulked long enough? Have you felt enough remorse? Have you beaten yourself enough? Have you flogged yourself like a good Catholic monk? Sorry, not all Catholics flog themselves. (laughs) Just, Just some orders. Have you felt bad enough or have you looked at the eyes of Jesus who went, I understand and I know and this isn't a surprise to me and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to pick you up. This will not be the end of you. Have you looked in the eyes of love? I need a third person. Can I have a third person? Thanks, Jules. Jesus stands alone. Twelve, these 12 disciples, three years, gone. Jesus stands alone. Judas, Jesus stands betrayed. The 10, Jesus stands abandoned. Peter, Jesus stands alone. Jesus still stands. And the story goes on. Now alone, now standing alone, Jesus is left with these authorized and deputized evil, murderous soldiers who've been told they're allowed to do their worst. No rules apply tonight. Do as you see fit. And they've heard stories of Jesus and they've heard their their leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees talk about him and mock him and jeer him. And so they join in and they blindfold him and they go, you say that you're a prophet? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you a funny story just to kind of lift the mood a little bit. My mom's name is Yuna. U-N-A, Una. There was a guy who was quite prophetic. For those who are in Karo, grew up in Caro circles, you know what I'm talking about. For those who grew up in more reform circles, uh, you, who cares? Um, <laughs> he was quite prophetic. He, he, he could give interesting and, and crazy words, and sometimes he would call people out by name in a meeting. Hey, I feel like is, is your, I, I'm looking at you and I feel like God is talking to John. Do you, do you, does John mean anything? And someone would be like, yeah, that's my name. Okay, well, John, this is what I think God might be saying to you. It's that, that's what I'm kind of talking about. A guy like that came to town and my mom was at this meeting and he called her up and he said, um, so what's your name? And she said, Una. And he said, no, I don't. 
what's your name? And she said, uh, it's Yuna. And he said, look, I, I, I really don't know what your name is, um, and I'd love to pray for you, but that's not how this works. <laughs> you know, he thought she was saying, you know, uh, you're the prophet, you know what my name is, you tell me, I'm not giving it away. He thought that's what was going on. This is what's going on here. They blindfold Jesus and they're like, if you're so prophetic, you tell us who's hitting you. They're not interested in him telling them who's hitting him. They're mocking him. They're jeering him. They're scoffing him. They're putting him down. They're interested in hitting him. Can you you understand that with me? It's one thing. It would even be a sinful thing to be interested in putting him in a position where he has to try, see through the mask, who they are. Like actually blindfold him and go, we're actually seriously interested. Can you do this? Can you look into our hearts from behind the blindfold? And obviously he could. That wasn't the interest. That would be bad enough to just kind of test Jesus that way. But they were actually interested in beating him, in spitting on him in mocking him. And it was all part of the, 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 the beat up. So I, won't, I need a fourth person to come. Can someone come and just stand here? Thanks, Nate. Jesus stood. Now we're starting to look a little more like Jesus. The only problem is that Isaiah says Jesus had nothing that would attract us to himself, and Nathan is an attractive man. (laughs) So picture Nathan, just not attractive. (laughs) Jesus stands abused. Jesus stands betrayed. Jesus stands abandoned. Jesus stands alone. Jesus stands abused. Alone and abused. The trial, a first of five trials begins. And they ask him the simple question, are you the Son of God? That's what the Jews have been waiting for, the Son of God. God was going to bring a Messiah who was going to rescue them. They thought that he was going to, make, he was going to rescue them from Rome and make them kind of this earthly kingdom. What God was promising is he was going to change all of history and rescue us not from, the slave, not from slavery to Rome, but slavery to sin. And that he was going to raise us from death and give us eternal life and recreate the whole world and bring us into a new heaven and a new earth where we live with God forever. They didn't get that. And they start saying, are you the one we've been waiting for? And he says to them this wonderful thing. Jesus, if Jesus doesn't have a sense of humor, maybe, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't know. But this is an interesting text. He, there's, a bit of, there's a bit in there. There's a bit of attitude in there. Where he goes, um, something, something to this effect. I'm not going to bother to even answer your question. Because you're so blind and deaf, you wouldn't understand anyway. It's a, it's, he's, not, he's not saying, I'm not going to answer your question. I'm just going to stand here and sulk. He's saying, I'm not going to answer your question. You're too ignorant and dead and blind and wicked and evil to even understand it if I did. He's he's just bypassing them. He's looking and just kind of going, I don't know if you follow golf. uh, At the moment, there's a fight between the PGA and the Live Tour. And the Australian Cameron Smith is right in the center of this battle because he's kind of the best golfer in the world who, who might 
join this rebel league. And the media says, Cam, are you going to join it? And he again and again and again, he says, I'm not answering that question. I'm just here to win tournaments. Then they ask him again, and he goes, I'm not paid to do your job. Your job is to write stories. My job is to win golf tournaments. Jesus has kind of got this laser focus. I'm not here to try and convince dead, ignorant, blind people who I am. Anyone who has sight and ears to hear knows precisely who I am. And then they say, well, are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Are you the Christ? And he says, you say I am. By your testimony, you've just said it. You, you, you've, the fact that you've arrested me, in other words, there's only two options. I either am or I am not. That's all that it comes down to. You, you can't say Jesus is a wise man. You can't say Jesus is a useful Buddha. You can't say Jesus is a guru with wonderful precepts. It comes down to this. Is Jesus the Son of God who has come to rescue the world, or is He not? Is He an insane, dangerous person? Or as C.S. Lewis says, you've only got three options. He's, he's either the liar He's not who he said he was. He's a lunatic because he called himself God. Or he really is who he said he was. He's the Lord. You, can only, you have to pick. And they're in that kind of position. And they pick, well, you're, not, you're definitely not him. We've heard enough. And Jesus responds, uh, so, so, uh, so I need a fifth one. Can a, can a fifth person just come stand here? Thanks, Hazza. Jesus is... Jesus is? Jesus is? Jesus is? And now Jesus stands accused. Accused of not being the Son of God. If, if you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you're on a journey wondering who Jesus is, Jesus takes you to a point not to decide whether you think He's a good man or not. Jesus brings you to a point where you have to decide, is He the Son of God or not? And if He's the Son of God, what do I do with Him? If he's not the Son of God, I would highly advise that you put him away and you forget him. He demands too much. And you shouldn't be following a liar or a lunatic. If he is the Son of God, I would advise that you take him very seriously because he will change your whole life and eternity. But he he stands here accused. And you must put Jesus on trial and decide who he is. If you don't... One day you will be on trial and you will be decided. And you'll stand alone and that's not a good idea. So Jesus stands accused. Jesus, basically this shows us, they said that this guy named Michael Collins, anyone, who, anyone except Steve know who Michael Collins is? I imagine you know who Michael Collins is. No? Maybe? Ah, oh, good. Steve, you know Michael Collins? <laughs> Does Richard, you know Richard? Ah, you do know. Oh, you're ruining the story. Good story. Okay, one person knows. It doesn't ruin it. It kind of proves the point that only one person knows who Michael Collins is. And as Richard said, he's the third guy on Apollo 11. Who knows who the other two guys were? Just say their names. Neil Armstrong. Have you heard of Neil Armstrong? Yeah, the other one? Buzz Aldrin. Heard of them? I mean, we're Australians. What do we care? And we know their names. But Michael Collins, he was the pilot. You don't know them if it's not for Michael Collins. But no one knows who Michael Collins is. And history records that he, was, he is the loneliest human who ever lived. Because while he was off planet Earth, his two buddies were on the moon, and he was just going around all by himself. 
I don't know why there's so much sympathy with Michael Collins. I've just spent 30 minutes talking about Jesus. I mentioned a guy who went around the moon, and everyone's like, oh, shame, Michael Collins. My point is not to muster up sympathy for Michael Collins, who I think is still alive and can go to be with Jesus forever. My, my point is to muster up some understanding of Jesus being the most lonely man who ever lived because no one in the world stood with him as he stood in our place. Not a person, not a soul. He stood alone. And he stood alone so that we would never be alone. He stood betrayed so that you would never be betrayed by God. He stood betrayed and then he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never give you a kiss of affection uh, that's really a kiss of betrayal. Every touch from me, every look from me, every kiss from me will be one of honest and true love. I will never betray you. There is nothing that could be offered me that I would, I would take in, in place of you. I choose you. Never betrayed. Why? Because Jesus was betrayed in our place. And then Jesus says, I will never abandon you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never abandon you. I will always be with you. I will give you my spirit to be with you. I will bring you into adoption to the Father. You'll be one of the children. I will share my entire inheritance with you. We will be sons and daughters of God. We will share in the inheritance. Everything that is mine is yours. It's, I give it to you. I will never abandon you. I will never leave you alone. I have faced your aloneness so that you will never be left alone. When we stand before God one day, we have Christ as our, our interceder. We have Christ as kind of our legal, um, our legal advice, standing there going, Father, I stood for them. Father, I was crucified for them. Father, they're mine. You will never stand alone. If your faith is in Jesus, no matter how far from Christ you feel, no matter where you are today, no matter what, what your doubts are screaming to you, He has no doubts about you. He has no concerns about His commitment. He's not second-guessing anything He's done. He will never leave you or forsake you. He will never abuse you. He never looks at you. Those of you who know Enneagram, oh, no, I'm not going to say that because I'm going to throw one of the numbers under the bus. There's a kind of a personality type that can accidentally use people. They don't mean to, but they just look at someone and they see all the potential in that personality and they just want to draw it out and do things with people. Jesus says, I will never abuse you. I will never misuse you. I will never try to squeeze out of you. I have purpose for you. I have a plan for you. I have a demand on your life, yes, but I will never abuse you. And Jesus says, I will never accuse you. You know, you stumble and fall, I stumble and fall. We may get up and accuse ourselves, but Jesus says that is not him. He says that Satan comes as the accuser of the brothers, not as the accuser of the sinners. You don't need to accuse the sinner. Everyone who's still left in their sin is accused by themselves. It's self-evident. They're a sinner. 
Satan comes to accuse the brothers and the sisters. Satan comes to accuse those who stand in Christ. But look at them. They're not living as they should. Look at them. They're stumbling and they're falling. Look at them. They promised to give you their life, but they haven't. Look at them. Their heart uh, runs after other things. You you say, put the Lord God first. You say, uh, be wholly devoted to me. But they're not. They're wholly devoted to other things. They're distracted and, and Satan accuses. And Jesus says, I will never accuse. I will never condemn. Jesus says this extreme sentence, there is no condemnation. The the New Testament says, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Not some, not over a long period of time, not little, not eventually. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He will not accuse you. Every single time you stumble and you fall and you're on your knees and you look up, He turns to you with His eyes of love. And His hand is offered up to you. And why can He do that? He can do that because He's already paid it all. Because He's already stood in our place. Have you been betrayed by someone before? Has someone turned on you that shouldn't have that broke your heart? Have you betrayed someone? Have you broken someone's trust and turned your back on them? Have you been abandoned when you really needed people to be around you? Felt left alone, perceived or real? Have you thought, this is really when people should have come around me, but they didn't? Has someone accused you of abandoning them? I really needed you and you weren't there for me. You said you would be, but you didn't show up. This was my time of trial. And I thought I could count on you. Have you stood alone? Have you made someone else stand alone? Have you left someone? Broken a promise, broken a covenant, left a friendship, left someone alone? Have you been left alone? Have people let you down? I know, Asher, it breaks my heart too. Have you been abused or have you abused? Have you used people for your own gain? Have you taken? Have you been more taken than a giver? Have you been taken advantage of? Has someone used you? Has someone abused you? Trust, affection, thoughts. Have you done that to others? Have you been accused? Have you been condemned? Have you been told you're not enough? Have you been told you didn't show up right? Have you done that to someone else? Have you pointed your finger? Have you accused others? There's not a person in this room who could have got through that gamut and not said yes. The pain and the suffering that we have experienced and that we have inflicted on one another is great. But there's one who says, but I take that on. I stand in the gap. Turn your eyes upon me. Turn your eyes to me. Isn't it interesting then that Jesus takes us to communion and he says, uh, in Corinthians, Paul says to us, you know, if you have ought against your brother before you take communion, go make right with him. What is he saying? 
You know, you're still accusing each other. You're still abusing each other. You're still misusing. Stop. Remember Christ. Turn your eyes to Him. Stand with Him. He says He will never. He has taken it all. He has borne it all. Therefore, as we turn our eyes to Christ, we can look to one another. We can look out in this world. We can look through our suffering and our pain. And we can see the light of God breaking in, breaking through. A hope given. And the question, Jesus says, I stand. I stand betrayed. I stand abandoned. I stand alone. I stand abused. I stand accused. I stand for you. I stand for you. And the question to us is, from Jesus is, will you stand with me? It's not a threatening question. It's not a you ought to. Look at all I've done. Will you now just stand with me, please? It's the greatest, the warmest, the biggest invitation Christ leaning towards us, offering His hand and saying, will you stand with me? Will you stand with me? Will you walk with me? Will you know a relationship as it ought to be? Will you let me reconcile your heart? Will you let me heal you? Will you let me help you forgive yourself for maybe terrible things you've inflicted or have had inflicted? Will you walk with me? Will you stand? Will you stand and take the baggage off? Will you stand and take the memories and the thoughts and the accusations off? Will you, ta- will you stand and t- let the history be washed off? I wonder if you can close your eyes. I'm going to close in prayer. If you five can please stay. I'm going to hand over to Jib to lead us in communion in a second. But I want to make this invitation with all eyes closed. I think, you, I think you can do what I'm going to ask with your eyes closed. If you can't, you can open your eyes if you need to. If this morning something of what Christ has done for you is piercing your heart and your mind, if it's refreshing what you already know or introducing what you never knew about Jesus and there's gratitude and joy, well, the Holy Spirit is challenging you encouraging you, calling you. And something, what happens when we really get what Christ does for us, it causes this kind of great fire to burn in our hearts and a great joy and energy. If in your heart you, you're like, Mark, I wish you would just shut up now. I just want to, I just want to respond to him. Well, your dream's going to come true. I want to invite you, if that's how you're feeling, I want to invite you to stand with Jesus. And then I want to pray for us. So do that now. Jesus stands with you. He invites you to stand with Him. Why don't you stand if you so desire?